Hey, good to see everybody. God bless you. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 4? Let's just back up to verse 1, just to get a kind of running start on tonight's study. But we uh, see the word therefore as Peter's now making application from the things he has just said in the previous chapters. But he said, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For you suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles or the unsaved world around us, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, from there, Peter begins to wrap things up with a series of exhortations that apply not only to those he was writing to directly, but all of us who are believers, of course, starting with verse 7, which we touched on last week, but we'll read it again. He said, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, when Peter said the end of all things is at hand, yeah, I, obviously he had in mind, no doubt, the wave of persecution that Nero had unleashed. I mean, we talked about this. Caesar Nero had unleashed a wave of persecution against the Christian church that was horrendous. I mean, Christians were being slaughtered all over the place. And no doubt Peter has that in mind, although I do see something bigger here. Peter was Jewish, and every Jew is waiting for the end of this present evil age. When he says, the end of all things is at hand, I think primarily, ultimately, he's talking about the end of the evil age of man's rebellion. We've talked about this, how it started in the Garden of Eden with uh, Adam rebelling against God, all right, and the fall happening from that point until our day. Uh, it began a time of rebellion where the world is really in the hands of, well, it's Satan's dominion primarily. He's the god of this world. But we see in the world today mankind running things and leaders that are power hungry and dictators and, you know, all the things that go along with it. And the Jewish people longed for the day when Messiah would come and establish his kingdom and bring a new age, not the metaphysical new age that the New Agers talk about, uh, but a new age which was going to be the rule of Messiah on the earth, uh, an age of righteousness and so on. And uh, that's what they were waiting for. And I think Peter is basically, though, ultimately talking about that. Yes, he's encouraging his Christian brothers and sisters living at that time to hang in there. <laughs> There's light at the end of the tunnel. All right. I mean, this persecution against uh, rebellion against God in general and the persecution against his people in particular, that's going to end very soon because Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to judge his enemies and establish his kingdom. And that's the idea. You can turn to 2 Thessalonians 1. So many we could look at. Paul talks about this. 2 Thessalonians 1, starting with verse 6. He said, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So God's going to 
deal with his enemies. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the Lord's coming. Second coming is in view there. However, I'm thinking that Peter, though, believing in the rapture, no doubt, is thinking of that primarily. How that, yes, the Lord's coming, but of course, preceding the second coming is the, his coming for his church, the rapture, where he's going to evacuate his people off this planet before the judgment of God falls upon the wicked. Uh, all those Christ rejectors, uh, of course, we talked about Revelation 6 uh, through chapter 19, deals with this in great detail. But, um, you know, he talks about the um, end of all things is at hand. Still reviewing from last week a little bit. Again, what's in view there is Christ's return, the rapture for the church. And it means, the Greek verb means it could occur at any time. It's imminent, which means there's nothing that has to happen before the rapture. It's imminent, it could happen at any time. And because of it, Peter's admonishing us to live with a watchfulness, a watchful vigilance and anticipation as we look for his return and all the while serving, being about our father's business and so on. Now, at the end of verse 7, he talks about the end of all things at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. The NIV translates that last part, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And guys, in the Greek, both of these are very similar in meaning. Uh, the first one comes from a term that literally means to be in one's right mind. To be in one's right mind. The idea is that believers are to keep a clear head, a sober mind when it comes to this life. Remember now, Satan is the god of this world. And he's trying very hard to, even with Christians, who he knows he's lost. I mean, once you belong to Christ, I believe you're, you're belong to Christ forever. So he, he, he's never going to get you to go to hell. I mean, you're saved. But if he can distract you, if he can uh, dangle things in front of you, uh, that, you know, you begin to fixate on, uh, you know, your, your thinking becomes clouded with material possessions. Uh, sober-minded, be sober-minded. The idea is we can be intoxicated with more things than just alcohol or drugs. We can be intoxicated with the cares of this life and the things that Satan dangles in front of us, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He, if he can get Christians to buy into these things, get them, this is what they're thinking about all the time, well, then, of course, he can um, distract them from their mission. And uh, this is something that he is admonishing us not to let happen. Don't, don't let that happen. Be clear-minded. Don't the devil get you thinking about junk of this world because it's going to take you away from the mission. Jesus is coming back very soon. You don't want to be entangled with the cares of this life. And uh, this, again, would reinforce the admonition that Peter gave to the believers earlier in verse 1 when he commanded us to have the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Be clear-minded. Have Jesus' mind. Uh, when he was on the earth, what did Jesus, what was his mind all about? Well, John 4, 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's got to be our mindset. We have work to do. Again, we must be about our father's business. 
Okay, and we have to remember that. Sure, we have to make a living. We have to work and uh, make money to live and so on. Uh, but again, your job is what you do to provide for yourself and your family. It's not who you are. Who you are in Christ is a servant of God. And uh, this world is rapidly passing away, the Bible says. Therefore, we, we must not let ourselves get intoxicated with anything the devil is trying to dangle in front of us of the world. We should keep our eyes on him. And like Jesus was fixated on finishing the work the Father sent him to do, that's got to be our mindset as well. And the second admonition of Peter, to be watchful in the New King James, the NIV translates it self-control, carries with it the idea of being on the alert. Jesus expressed a similar command in Matthew 24, verse 42, and then Matthew 26, 41. I'll read them to you. He said, watch therefore... For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And then Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Sounds very much like what Peter's saying. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In fact, the Lord spoke that to Peter, James, and John uh, the night before the cross in the garden when they were falling asleep, right? Or they did fall asleep. And uh, maybe Peter is remembering the words of his Lord and incorporating them into his epistle in chapter 4, verse 7. Of course, the context for both of these commands in verse 7 was that sober-mindedness and spiritual alertness are crucial for the purpose of prayer, listen, in these last days. If you really believe we're in the last days, and I know that you guys do, I'm just, but the Church of Jesus Christ in general, many don't. I've heard uh, professing Christians say, well, I know he's coming back, but maybe in a thousand years. Really? We're not guaranteed a thousand minutes. It could happen any time. But if you re that's really your mindset, think about the way it's going to affect the way you pray. You're going to pray less and less about things and more and more about souls. Because let's face it, right? I mean, honestly, if we really believe the Lord's coming back soon, well, he said, occupy till I come, which means go about your business, keep working. I mean, you don't want to become Millerites. So back in the 1800s, uh, he figured out when Christ was coming. And so he shared that with a bunch of people, and they became followers of his. And, uh, you know, right before the day came when the Lord was coming back, they sold everything, all their farms. It's in Illinois. went up on top of a hill and put on white robes and just waited for the Lord's return as they sang hymns. About a week went by, and finally they decided he wasn't coming back, you know. So we can't be Millerites. We have to occupy, keep, keep going. But if we really believe the Lord's coming back, it's going to really affect the way we live. We're not going to be entangled with the cares of this life, and we are going to be praying for our loved ones primarily, and so on. One author said, Prayer is the access to all spiritual resources, but believers cannot pray properly if their minds are unstable due to worldly pursuits, ignorance of divine truth, or indifference to divine purposes. That's true. Now, in verse 8 we read, Above all, remember now he's giving us a series of exhortations as he's winding things down. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. The word love there is agape, which is an all-consuming, unconditional love, mostly associated with God's love in the New Testament. All the places that talk about God's love, it is the word agape. And the word fervent is a word that pictures, and this is interesting, it's a word that pictures an athlete straining to reach the goal. It speaks of effort, 
like an athlete in training. Uh, you know, if you've ever been an athlete, if you've ever competed for anything, you know that you have to train. You've got to train for whatever competition you're going to be involved in. Uh, and that's painful. In fact, somebody said, if the glory of winning was not greater than the pain to get there, the training, nobody would train. Okay? Well, the glory of what's coming, I can guarantee you, is worth the struggle, the strain, the effort. But the idea is that we are to love each other fervently, like an athlete going for it and really, you know, training to make his or her muscles, you know, stronger. You keep exercising those muscles, they keep getting stronger. Well, you know what? In a way, Christians need to exercise God's love if that lovingness is going to grow stronger and stronger and so on. Now, here's the bad news. For us to exercise God's love, it means he's going to have to lead into our life difficult people. Because it's easy to love nice folks. Jesus said, well, it's no big deal you love people that love you. Your family, friends, so on. That's no big you got to love your enemies. What do you mean love my enemies? How can I love my enemies? I don't feel anything from my enemies. It's not about feeling. God's love is an action. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, the way you love your enemies is to meet their needs. Pray for them, but also meet their needs if the opportunity presents itself. In this way, you're exercising God's love. And you know what? I guarantee you, the more you exercise God's love, the easier it's going to be to love. But that's just something we need to take to heart. Author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, If we really look to, for the return of Christ, then we shall think of others and properly relate to them. Love for the saints is important. Now he's focusing, and Peter was too, focusing primarily on loving other Christians. That's important. We talk about enemies. They really stretch our love. Okay, But more than anything else, we need to have a, a, a love for the brethren. Jesus said in, in John 13, the night before he went to the cross, verses 34 and 5, you know, this is the kind of love I want you to love each other with, the kind of love I've loved you with, all right? Uh, he said, uh, by this kind of love, all will know that you belong to me, you're my disciples, by the fervent love you have one for another, right? And Worsby said this, he said, you know, if we really look for the return of Christ, then we shall think of others and properly relate to them. Love for the saints is important, above or before all things. Love is the badge of a believer in this world. Especially in times of testing and persecution, Christians need to love one another and be united in heart, end quote. And you know what, guys? Let me say this to you. I don't know what's coming, but if something really bad is coming, I am so glad I have my family in Christ in this church to go through it with. Because we love each other, but really, if we're going through a really difficult, horrendous time, whatever that may mean, we're going to need each other. Okay, we're really going to need each other. And it's going to be an awesome thing to have folks that you love that love you to band together with and to endure these things together with. But listen to me, guys. We talk about us giving. God's love is giving, sacrificial. That's true. But Christian love isn't just giving. It's also forgiving. And Peter quotes at the end of the verse, love will cover a multitude of sins. In saying this, guys, Peter was quoting Proverbs 10, verse 12, which reads, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. This is not saying that God's love within us condones sin. God's love never condones sin because God doesn't condone sin. I mean, he's a holy God. All sin is an affront to his holiness. But 
you have to realize that when when God sees his people sinning, it grieves his heart. Why? Well, because sin destroys our relationship with him. Sin brings consequences into our life, and not just in our life, but the lives of those around us. So a person given over to alcohol or drugs is not only going to affect their life, it's going to affect everyone around them that they love. And so God doesn't condone sin. That's not what Peter is talking about. What he is saying is God's love covers sins. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe it describes believers who are lovingly, listen, overlooking the sins others commit against them and not spreading those sins around through gossip. Let me tell you what so-and-so did to me. He claims to be such a strong Christian. Let me tell you what he did or she did, right? And you know what God is saying? You know, my love covers. I mean, you know what? I mean, we're not condoning it. We're just not spreading it around, making it worse, getting people all worked up and divided over uh, against each other and so on. And then he goes on in verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. That's, that's really important, isn't it? Well, I'll be hospitable, but I won't like it. Well, that's, you know, that's really not the way to go, all right? You know, um, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Uh, the word translated hospitable in the Greek literally means stranger love, stranger love. John Phillips said, and I quote, the word for hostility is phalozenos, phileo, love, zenos, stranger. So literally, it means stranger love, or he says it literally means to be friendly to strangers. It embraced particularly the needs of Christians who, in their travels, needed a bed for the night or a meal. In Peter's day, there were no public welfare. There was no public welfare. Uh, overflowing love would find many opportunities to minister to the needy. Uh, for instance, along the uh, arterial highways and in the big cities were inns that traveling believers could use. But in such places there was danger and temptation. Nero's spies were everywhere. On the other hand, it was dangerous to open one's house to strangers. But that was a risk to be encountered and discounted when opportunity arose to extend a loving, helping hand to a professing believer who is traveling and in need, end quote. Well, you know, there's no guarantees in life. When you open yourself up to people to love them and help them, sometimes you'll be taken advantage of, and sometimes maybe even worse. They may physically harm you. I, I don't know, but you have to be led by the Spirit. The early Christians understood that uh, travelers, many of them Christians, would need a place to stay for the night. They would open their homes. Uh, it was a great way to have fellowship, or if they were unsaved, to witness to them. But they were always about showing kindness to people. And God used it. God used it. Now, First Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, no subject in evangelical Christianity has generated more controversy than this one. All right? I'm just going to tell you. There are many good churches that are what's known as cessationists. Cessationists. In other words, they believe certain gifts of the Holy Spirit, like tongues and miracles, prophecy, healings, etc., 
were only given by the Holy Spirit to the church temporarily to authenticate the apostles' ministry and primarily their teaching, that their teaching was the inspired word of God. Much of what they, they spoke became our New Testament. And so this was the Holy Spirit's way, they say, cessationists, of the Holy Spirit validating the apostles' ministry, that they were speaking on behalf of God, and therefore God allowed them to prophesy and work miracles and so on. But only until the New Testament canon of Scripture could be completed. And after it was completed, at the end of the apostolic period, at the end of the first century, then the gifts were no longer needed, the New Testament was finished, and the Spirit withdrew those gifts. Some people call these sign gifts. Why sign gifts? Because they were an evidence from God or a sign that he was working through these apostles and they were speaking his word. And that word, of course, was to be our New Testament. But after they completed the New Testament, the Spirit withdrew those gifts. Now, they believe that many of the gifts are still around. Gift of helps, administration, organization, those kind of gifts. But not tongues, prophecy, miracles, healings, that all passed off the scene at the end of the first century. Now, these are good churches, many of them. Good, solid churches. Uh, I could rattle off the names of some of the pastors. You'd know them right away. They're good men. Uh, they're cessationists, though. They don't believe the gifts. those gifts of the Holy Spirit are around anymore today. And uh, then you have other good churches who believe that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation today, like our church, and like the rest of the churches in the Calvary Chapel movement. Now, one of the problems that I think causes a lot of Christians to get very nervous about spiritual gifts is because of the abuses they have seen in some church circles. And, and you know, God love them, our Pentecostal and charismatic brethren. Um, they're very much into the gifts for today. And um, the way they exercise them, though, is often confusing and chaotic. It's often confusing and chaotic. I think much of the confusion comes from the fact that often Christians in these churches have learned about the gifts and their operation from watching other people in those churches exercise the gifts. And so you have one generation of Christians who don't really understand what the gifts really are and how they operate, exercising these gifts and their kids are there in the services and the kids are watching how their parents do it and they pick up on it and instead of going to the bible to find out what god says about the gifts and how they are to function and, and, and so on no we're just looking at each other and kids are replicating what they see their parents doing i, I learned this was driven home to me years ago when i had a, a friend who was an elder at one of these very charismatic churches and we got together our churches for a night of worship and prayer. And uh, at the uh, end of the evening, we were, you know, in a circle praying. And there were some young kids there, too, you know. And, of course, their parents and all were praying. And as I'm praying in a circle, was standing there. And I happened to open my eyes. I never opened my eyes when I pray, but I did. And one of the little girls, about 10, who was in the circle standing there praying, well, now she was laying on the ground. Now, I didn't hear her hit the ground. I mean, I would have heard a thud. It was right next to me. Which means she, at one point, just laid, gently laid herself down. Why did she do that? 
because she was used to people falling over in these services and she wanted to be like mom or dad or like the pastor or whatever. And so she laid down. But she's just imitating what she's seen. She doesn't really know why she's laying down, I was convinced. But um, we have to be careful. There's a lot of abuses uh, in these uh, churches. In fact, um, I have heard about numerous ultra-charismatic churches where the exercise of the spiritual gifts was so chaotic and even downright bizarre, it actually, I think, helped critics, skeptics of the gifts. It convinced them that they were right in saying these were not of God but of the devil. One example comes to my mind. Uh, my pastor, Chuck Smith, told the story of one day he was in a church service. How he got there, I forgot what he said, knew somebody or whatever. Um, didn't really know the church, but was there for a service. And as soon as the service began, he realized he was in the wrong church. Because as soon as the pastor opened in prayer, pandemonium broke out. And people started to yell and scream and run around. And one guy began to take laps around the church, screaming out these you know, Native American war hoop cries. Okay, And Chuck said, you know, about that time I was leaving. And as he walked out of the building... Suddenly, here comes this guy running out after him and falls on the sidewalk and begins to hit his, began to hit his head on the sidewalk. And Chuck said, Sir, what are you doing? The Spirit's making me do it. The Spirit's making me do it. He said, Look, if you want to act like this, that's up to you. Don't blame the Holy Spirit. But this is the craziness. And people look at that and go, Christians, look, and unbelievers too, look at that and go, This is nuts. I don't want any part of this. And that's really sad because before Paul launched into a teaching about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, he said in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, listen, I do not want you to be ignorant. And when he wrote that, he put the word ignorant in super emphatic terms in the Greek. This was something that was really on Paul's heart, passionately. You see, Paul knew, and he, he talks about this in various other places in the New Testament. Paul knew that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, now we're not just talking about tongues and healings and miracles, we're talking about all the gifts. But Paul knew that these gifts of the Holy Spirit were essential for the church to grow and develop and uh, be unified and to become all that God wanted the church to be. Paul realized how vital to the life of the body of Christ these gifts were. That's why he said, I don't want... And of course, there were abuses in Paul's day. And that's why he wrote to the Corinthians in part, to correct some of the abuses. But he said, look, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Super emphatic. Because this is such an important subject. Your church needs to, to understand the gifts and properly use the gifts if you're going to be all that God wants you to be. Same is true with our church. And because of it, guys, I'd like to spend the next few weeks of our study uh, studying this subject, especially since we are a church that believes in these gifts. Now, we haven't really had a teaching about, I checked my notes, I think 09 was the last time, that was when we were in 1 Corinthians. And a lot of you were not coming back then. That's been nine years. It's a long time. And uh, because there is so much confusion in the body of Christ, maybe even in this church, because I see a lot of new faces and, you know, you haven't been coming that long and maybe you haven't really 
uh, sat through a teaching on what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are really all about and how they operate. Uh, I'd like to take the next few weeks to really look at this subject. Since Peter brings it up, let's look into this and uh, get a good grounding uh, biblically of what these gifts are all about and so on. Now, before we go any further, though, into the area of spiritual gifts, we need to stop and make some observations. First of all, we need to make a distinction between spiritual gifts and natural abilities. Now, every one of us in this room were born with natural, God-given abilities. Some of you are great artists or musicians. Uh, some of you are gifted athletes or you were. <laughs> some people are really good with mechanical things. Uh, one of the guys in the church was telling me, uh, that uh, he was with another guy in our church, and they were, you know, uh, by the first guy's house. And in his garage, he had a big detached garage and uh, was loaded with, uh, he had all kinds of shop stuff for fixing cars. And a buddy came over, and when the buddy pulled up in the driveway, this guy in our church could tell something was wrong with his trans. It didn't sound right. And the guy said, yeah, it's slipping. I think it's going. Come on. Jumped in the, this guy's truck, went to the junkyard bought a, a a used tranny came back threw it in and in two hours they were you know they were having their burgers or hot dogs and the guy's truck was completely fixed i'm amazed by that that's incredible okay some people are just good with uh, this kind of thing they're just they have these natural abilities um but listen these natural talents and abilities guys that god gave to us when we were born physically are different from the supernatural gifts that he gave to us when we were born again spiritually. And when it comes to spiritual gifts, in fact, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, because we're going to be in there. But when it comes to spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 11, It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. And I read that out of the NLT, so you get a little different flavor of what Paul is saying, but it's the one and only Holy Spirit who distributes all these gifts. So we'll touch on this more in a moment. He alone decides which gift each person should have. As one author put it, we are gifted according to his plan, his purpose, and his measure. We have no more to do with determining our spiritual gifts than we did with determining what color of skin, hair, or eyes we would be born with, end quote. Now, guys, listen. Some of the verses talk about your spiritual gift. And from that, people think, well, do we only get one gift from the Holy Spirit? Kind of, but not really. It's one gift if you understand it's a unique blending of several different spiritual gifts. These gifts of the Spirit, some say there are nine of them, there's probably more, but uh, these uh, gifts are kind of like primary colors on a painter's palette, which the Holy Spirit mixes in different amounts and intensities to create a unique blending for each individual Christian so that each Christian is uniquely equipped for the work God is calling them to personally. So somebody might have the gift of prophecy. You know, another person might have it too. But in one person, it's really intense the way it works. Another person, you know, once in a while, the Spirit will prophesy through them. Where somebody else, it's much more common, okay? And I've seen this. 
God speaks to my heart like he speaks to yours. And whether that's a word of wisdom or whether it's a prophecy, he's just speaking to my heart about something. We all experience that. But there are some people that God speaks to them all the time and in very specific ways. And I've known people like that. And when they, t- you know, they, they talk to you about how God spoke to them, and it was like really, really specific. And it's like, wow, that gift is really strong in that person's life. And no doubt because they need it for whatever ministry God has called them to. So we, we each have a gift, but it's a unique blend of different gifts. Different gifts, different intensities of each gift blended together to make a unique package that then we can use for whatever ministry God has called us to do. And let me just say this, as believers in Jesus Christ and as part of the body of Christ, we have, listen, all been given spiritual gifts. Not me, yes. We've all been given spiritual gifts. The question is, well, how do I discover? How do I discover what my gifts are? How, how does a believer discover and develop his or her gifts? That's a good question. And guys, I'll give you a simple answer. I believe it's the only way the Holy Spirit will reveal what your gifts are to you is if you get plugged into the local church and start serving. Yeah, but where? I need to know what my gift is to serve. No, you start wherever there's a need. Trust God. You just be faithful. Don't despise the days of small things. You just be faithful, get plugged in, look for the need. And as you Get plugged in and are, begin to use, just serve whatever area that is of the church ministries. Is your faithful God will, you know, you may bounce around to several ministries over the course of time until you settle in on the one God has really called you to. And by that time, you're going to know what your heart is, okay? I mean, when you've been a Christian for a while, by this time you have a heart for something. When I talk to people who say, you know, they can't drive by a nursing home without their heart yearning for those elderly folks in there i think they have the gift of mercy i think they have the gift of mercy and some other things when i talk to somebody who says man i just love to get somewhere with my bible and i love to have a piece of paper and a pencil and i love to read and read and dig and dig and write down things and have the holy spirit reveal little insights to me i just that's my passion you're probably a teacher okay because if you're not a teacher uh, you love the word, but <laughs> all the little nuances don't excite you as much as they excite us who are teachers, okay? What I get excited about when I study the word, a lot of times you, you'd be like, really? Well, okay, I understand. You know, just give me the bottom line. I, 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 a lot of, I hear that. Just give me the bottom line. All right, well, but, but I enjoy the process of digging the things out, okay? Anyways, I just believe that as you are faithful in whatever area of service you get involved in, uh, believe me, the Holy Spirit will move you around and eventually you will get plugged into the ministry he has ultimately called you to and equipped you for. So, you know, just just start serving. But um, remember that every Christian has been given spiritual gifts. Listen, whether they use them or not. Apparently, Timothy was afraid to use one of the gifts of the spirit that the spirit gave to him which prompted paul to say to him in second timothy 1 verses 6 and 7 paul said therefore timothy i remind you to stir up the gift of god which is in you through the laying on of my hands 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So whatever, and Timothy was ministering in Ephesus, which was a rough place. Apparently he was afraid to use something God gave to him, whether it was the gift of exhortation, because, you know, you got to exhort people that are kind of rough around the edges. That's kind of scary. They don't like what you're saying. They can pound you kind of thing. I don't know. So, uh, but, but he was, a, Paul says, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Uh, get in there. God will give you the strength, but just be faithful to the gifting uh, he's given you. Now, guys, when it comes to spiritual gifts, and again, we're just laying some groundwork. Peter mentions a couple here in 1 Peter 4, verse 11. Paul mentions a few more in Romans 12, verses 6 to 8. But the most comprehensive list of the gifts comes out of 1 Corinthians 12. So you're already there. And let's just pick it up in verse 1. Paul said, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Let me stop there. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, and then verses 4 to 7, uh, Paul uses five different words to describe what spiritual gifts are and how they operate. I'll just give them to you. In verse 1, he uses the word spiritual. Now, if you look at verse 1 in your Bible, this is now concerning spiritual, and the word gifts is in italics, right? That means it's not there in the Greek. It was added by the translators for clarity. But what Paul is saying is now, what he's literally saying is now concerning spirituals. And the word spiritual, there's a Greek word pneumatikon, and it means controlled by the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying spiritual gifts are controlled by the Spirit as to who receives what blendings of gifts and in what intensity. Now, we've talked about that already. We're going to repeat some of this, so just hang in there, okay? Some of this is going to overlap. In verse 4, the word gifts is charismaton in the Greek, which means gifts of grace or grace gifts. In other words, they can't be earned. Grace is a gift. You can't earn a gift. So these gifts are these gifts are from God. They can't be earned, uh, but they're given freely by God. And you don't want to try to buy them from the Lord. Because Simon, the sorcerer, tried that in Acts 8. Remember that? He tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter, who, uh, you know, when he laid his hands on people, they spoke in tongues, they prophesied, and all kinds of other things happened. And Simon, the sorcerer, uh, you know, it was common among the sorcerers to buy each other's incantations and spells and all the, you know, that kind of thing. And Simon tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter, and you can read about what Peter said to him. You know, he said, look, basically, you and your money can go straight to hell, not swearing, but talking literally, okay? And I think Simon was so shaken he got saved or got right with God. But uh, you don't want to, these things... Gifts cannot be purchased. They're, they're free, freely given by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, Paul uses the word ministries. This is a Greek word, diakonon, which means to serve. And that tells us that these uh, spiritual gifts are to be used, listen, to serve the body of Christ, not to serve ourselves. There's a lot of people who 
pretend to be Christians. Maybe they really think they are Christians who have these public ministries or on TV and so on, and they use spiritual gifts, or at least it looks like they have spiritual gifts, but uh, they use them in such a way as to uh, bring money into the ministry. This character is on TV, and is there a gym out there? You know, God is telling me something that he really wants you to hear. Now, if you write into us, I will send back to you what I believe God wants you to know. And listen, when you do write in, we include a nice gift for our ministry because, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just amazing to me, you know. These gifts are to be used for the service of the body. In verse 6, he uses uh, activities is a word there, activities. The Greek word is uh, energematon, a word uh, that we get our English word energy from. And guys, this means that these gifts... These gifts are energized by the Spirit of God. Again, they're not natural enablements. They're supernatural enablements, okay? They're not natural abilities. And we have to remember that because if you're going to operate in the power of the Spirit, you cannot take it to yourself that these are coming from you, okay? That you have to keep reminding yourself, look, I am operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if at any time I begin to take credit for what God's doing, he'll remove the gift. Very important, okay? So these gifts are supernatural enablements, not natural abilities. And in verse 7, he uses the word manifestation. The Greek word is phanerosis, which means to make known or revealed. And again, it's the Holy Spirit that reveals or makes known these gifts in our lives in the process of us serving in the local church. Now, guys... These gifts, unlike what some Christians tend to think, are not an end in themselves. In other words, they're not given to us by God for the purpose of entertainment or giving us some kind of a spiritual rush. There are people who are Holy Ghost junkies. And they run around every meeting where they think the Holy Spirit's going to be because they're looking for that high, that, that kind of that rush emotionally. And uh, the, these gifts are not intended by God to make you feel, you know, give you a rush of emotion or, or anything else like that. Uh, they're not a, an end in themselves. They're a means to an end. Turn to Ephesians 4. Again, this is the problem with a lot of the charismatic churches. People go to these churches because of the exercise of these various gifts. That is the goal. That is the focus. But when they leave, they've learned nothing to help them walk with the Lord throughout the week. It's all about an emotional high. The goal is for people to come to church, hear the word of God taught, and then maybe the exercise of the gifts in a, in not in a chaotic way, but in an organized way, that will help with your walk with the word of God. It's got to be the focus. But anyways, these gifts are intended to be for an end purpose. In Ephesians 4, starting with verse 13, he said, Till we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, in other words, mature, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's because you're immature. Well, you're never going to grow if you don't feed on the Word of God. You know, we don't want to be like spiritual children tossed around by every wind of doctrine because we're too immature in our faith to know what the Word of God really says. Uh, by the trickery of men... And the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, a lot of charlatans out there and false teachers and so on, 
who are going to try to make merchandise off of God's people. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that's Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Very simply, Paul is saying we all have spiritual gifts when we come together and we all use our gifts. The whole body is benefited. The whole body is strengthened. And of course, some of those gifts are teaching gifts that pastors have and uh, Sunday school teachers and small group leaders. And there are those in the body of Christ who are gifted to teach the word of God. There are those who are gifted to show mercy and gifts of service and helps. And when we all come together and use our gifts, uh, the body is well-rounded. It's healthy and can fulfill the purpose for which God ordained it, the Church of Jesus Christ in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Nobody can reach this area quite like our church, and of course other spirit-filled churches that are in this area too, but God has put us here for a reason. This is where, you know, this is our Jerusalem, okay? Uh, when the Spirit is poured out, you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, whatever your hometown is, Judea, Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is our Jerusalem. This is our hometown for most of us, right? At least where our church is. And we start here and using our gifts and being a light and so on. But as we are strengthened as a body we are able to do the work god's calling us to do now again let's just recap some of the important points uh, concerning spiritual gifts and we'll close we're not going to spend a lot of time tonight uh, we'll get into this in detail now starting next week but again and as we go through these points some of them are going to be rehashing what we just talked about but i'll just give them to you because i wanted to give you a kind of a comprehensive listing of um some points concerning spiritual gifts, just general points. Number one, they are essential. They are essential. So people that say, well, I don't need spiritual gifts. Says who? I just get into the Word. Great. But you're not an island. You're not a lone ranger. You're supposed to be connected to a body. And that body is to be using the gifts of the Spirit. So, you know, they are essential. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Ephesians 4, 12. Paul tells us that Christians must minister their gifts in order the body of Christ may be built up. Number two, they can be, listen, counterfeited. They can be counterfeited. One that comes to my mind is prophecy. I was listening to a pastor this week who was saying that when he first got saved, he went to a very charismatic church. He was new in the Lord, you know, and so on. And, uh, but he's on fire. He would witness to his friends. And when they get saved, they would ask him, where do you go to church? Well, no, no, don't come to my church. He would actually send them to another church. Why? Because he said, you know, we knew every service Sunday, 11 o'clock, Mrs. So-and-so would stand up with a word from God, my little children, hearken unto my voice. Then she'd rattle on, just like clockwork. Well, a lot of that is not the Holy Spirit. A lot of that is people kind of, they think they're hearing from God. Or speaking on behalf of God. I think a lot of it's pride. Look at me how spiritual I am. It goes for a lot of the gifts. okay, In the church now. But they, they can be um, fleshly counterfeits. okay, But also satanic counterfeits. As we're going to see. The devil counterfeits what God does. So God has got spiritual gifts. The devil has his occultic gifts. Uh, God is prophecy. 
unbelievers in the occult have ESP. God can predict the future in prophecy uh, and does oftentimes. Well, they have clairvoyance. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that, that the Holy Spirit gives to his church that Satan has counterfeited. In fact, I heard a pastor, a well-known pastor, say years ago that tongues is no longer around today. Anyone claiming to be a Christian who is exercising the gift of tongues is not really exercising a gift of the Holy Spirit. They're exercising a demonic counterfeit because if, if you're trying to exercise a gift God's no longer giving, again, he was a cessationist, they're no longer around, then you open yourself up to receiving a demonic counterfeit. And they went on to prove his point by saying, talked about different um, uh, native groups, different parts of the world. And now they speak in tongues, proving his point. No, that doesn't prove your point. It proves my point. <laughs> if tongues was not around today, Satan wouldn't be counterfeiting it. The fact that people are, you got native somewhere, speaking in unknown tongues, uh, gibberish and so on, trying to counterfeit what God says to me that the gift of tongues is still in operation today. But there are satanic counterfeits. Number three, the Holy Spirit is the source. Okay, again, all these gifts are supernaturally given and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Once again, they are not natural talents and abilities. That's why Paul calls them spirituals, pneumaticon, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, which means controlled by the Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit. Number four, the gifts of the Spirit are not an indication of spiritual maturity. Will you remember this one? You forget all of these, will you write this one down? The gifts of the Spirit aren't an indication of spiritual maturity, superiority, or holiness. And my scripture to prove that is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, where Paul said to the Corinthians, you have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation in your church, but I wish I could speak to you like spiritual people. I can't because you're carnal, you know, divisions and schisms, and you're fighting and bickering over the dumbest stuff. I wish I could talk to you like mature believers. I can't. You're like babes in Christ, carnal Christians. Now, we'll talk about why that is in just a second. Just so you know, though, that when somebody is exercising the gifts of the Spirit, they think many times, they think, look how spiritual I am. But I'm telling you, even if they were exercising genuine gifts of the Spirit, that does not mean they're mature. Number five, the gifts are not for personal gratification or profit. Again, their purpose isn't to entertain us or to provide us with an emotional high. The gifts of the Spirit are given to us to be tools, tools to be used in the building up of the body of Christ. And that's why Paul in verse 5 calls them services. A service is something you do for someone else. You serve someone else. And in verse 7 he says they are to be used for the profit of all, for the profit of the entire body, not for personal profit or gain. Number six, they are channels through which the divine power and energy of God can flow. This is a good one. It is tremendously exciting to realize that we become channels for the power of God to flow through 
to touch and transform the lives of others every time we use our spiritual gifts. Whatever your giftedness is. And again, we think of these dramatic gifts like miracles and things like that. No. Every time you exercise the gift of mercy, because that's one of the gifts God has given you, it's a powerful thing. I mean, there are people, my wife is one of them, okay? She's got this amazing, it's the Holy Spirit. But she tells me this all the time. Every time, you know, at work or somewhere, when she's talking to somebody that, you know, kind of knows her or, you know, whether they're a Christian or just maybe somebody where she works, every time they see her, they, they, they want to open up to her. Something about her, they want to just open up. They start weeping all the time. You know, so, yeah, you know so-and-so was at work, and we were yeah, having coffee, and, 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 you know, and we got alone, and all of a sudden they were crying and pouring out their heart to me, you know. And, and, and that's just the Holy Spirit in her, this gift they just connect with, okay? And, and, and she's been used by God to really transform lives because of the mercy. So it could be anything like that. Uh, I hope, I hope and pray that through the teaching God has allowed me to do, the Holy Spirit is really energizing that, and that's making a difference in people's lives. But we all have gifts, and if we use them, they can be powerfully used by God to transform people's lives. Uh, number seven, uh, they come in varieties. Again, uh, each gifting, and I say a gifting to each person is made up of a blend of gifts, of course. But uh, you know, we all receive this unique blending of spiritual gifts which equip us personally and perfectly for the ministry God has called us to. As somebody said, we're like spiritual snowflakes. If we don't fulfill our ministry, well, God will raise somebody else up. But every one of us is unique for a unique ministry. And somebody else might be able to step in and do it pretty well, but not as perfectly as we could do it if we would exercise our gifts. i give you a couple of scriptures. Romans 12, verses 5 and 6. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us, and so on. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but, uh, but one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each Christian individually as the Holy Spirit wills. Number 8. Joy, this is important too, joy comes in exercising our gifts. The word for gift is the Greek word charisma. And it comes from the word kara, which means joy. Which means joy. One of the ways God fills our lives with joy as believers is when we use our spiritual gifts in service to others. You can check out John 13, 17. Okay? So often, this is important you understand this so many christians uh feel uh dry uh empty no joy they can't figure out why they get really kind of angry at the lord you promised me a life of joy where is it yeah but a life of joy that comes in service to others and when you get plugged into a local church or uh if you're just using your gifts in service to others the um, byproduct is joy. We're going to find in our study in John's Gospel, when we get to chapter 13, joy is not a direct pursuit in the Christian life. In other words, you don't do something to directly get joy. It's a byproduct of a life of service when we spend our lives serving others. 
That's when joy comes. And the gifts are how we serve others. And so that's important. You want joy in your Christian life? Well, you've got to get plugged into a local church. I'm talking just in general terms now. You've got to get plugged into a local church and start using your gifts. Because that's where the joy comes from when you serve others. Number nine, experiencing the fullness of all God has for us is only possible through the exercise of our spiritual gifts. So God has got the joy as a byproduct, but God has got a lot of things he wants to do in and through us. And those things will never become a reality unless we are, again, using our spiritual gifts. Every Christian has a desire to live the abundant life that Jesus promised. That's true. But again, this can only happen when we are functioning in God's will by using our spiritual gifts, and I'm thinking primarily in the local church. Number 10, the gifts of the Spirit are not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is found in, in Galatians 5, to 23. Now, remember we talked about just a few minutes ago how that people that exercise the gifts are not necessarily the strongest, most mature, most holy people in the body of Christ. Why is that? Here's the distinction, okay, between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Big, big difference, okay? I hear sometimes Christians kind of mixing them up. Love is not a gift. Some people say, Lord, give us the gift of love. Actually, love is not a gift. Love is a fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on, right? A spiritual gift is given by the Holy Spirit the moment a person gets saved. You, you may not realize it. Well, we have ex examples in the New Testament where people were saved and then began to prophesy right there or speak in tongues, right? The Holy Spirit gives gifts to brand new Christians, and they can use them immediately. I can be a Christian five seconds. I can be prophesying or speaking in tongues, like we just said, right? The fruit of the Spirit is grown over time as we continue to walk closely with the Lord. So the fruit of the Spirit, fruit is grown, right? Gifts are given. Again, can be used immediately. Fruit is grown. And that comes as I stay connected. You can read John 15. You know, if we remain connected to the vine, to Jesus Christ, the life of the Spirit flows through us. And the longer we are connected to Christ, the more the fruit begins to, to grow, right? I think when I think of fruit of the Spirit, I think of somebody who has walked with the Lord for a while. And uh, it's a, an evidence of maturity, character, and so on. So that's important to understand because, again, a lot of churches equate the gifts of the Spirit with holiness, maturity, and so on. No. I look for fruit. When I see a person who is walking in love, joy, has peace in the midst of any circumstance, I see a person that I know has been walking with Jesus for a while. And uh, it's evident because they have the fruit of the Spirit growing in their life. Eleven, you can have a gift and not be using it. We just talked about that. Timothy had a gift. Uh, whatever it was, we're not told. Paul laid hands on him, prayed over him, and the Spirit gave him something. But Timothy was afraid. Timothy was a young guy serving in a very rough church, maybe like a biker church back then <laughs> without the bikes. But, um, but he was afraid to use his gift. Could be that he wasn't just afraid. Maybe he was discouraged and stopped ministering his gift. Lot, I'm convinced a lot of Christians today, every Christian has gifts. 
I'm convinced a lot of Christians have stopped really using their gifts because they're discouraged. These are rough times. And when you're out there trying to serve the Lord and you see very little response, some of those people get discouraged and say, what's the point? Why should I spend all that time preparing studies? I got one person coming. What's the point? Well, the point is to be faithful. And you be faithful in the little things. You use your gifts. And God will bless. And who's to say that one person that you're ministering to might not be the next D.L. Moody? Or the next Billy Graham? You know? I mean, years ago, when we first started the church, I felt like that. I had some moments where Bible study was only like three people that night. You know, I don't know where everybody was. We had about maybe 15 uh, in a house at that time. Uh, but there were, were times when it was like only like three people. And of course, as a teacher, you know, I kind of draw my uh, energy from you guys. And so there were times I was discouraged about it. Now, let me just say this to you. Those Bible studies were some of the most blessed I ever was a part of. I don't know what it was. Not a lot of people, but boy, the Spirit was really working. But I remember being discouraged and hearing one of our Calvary pastors who now pastors a church of ten or 15,000. He said that when he first started, he was very discouraged and had, you know, uh, just a handful of people different times. And he uh, brought it to the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Jeff, I think his name was, Jeff, if you're not willing to teach five, with as much passion and enthusiasm as 5,000, then your heart is wrong. Your heart is wrong. He said, that, that liberated me. That liberated me. And I, be, I stopped looking at numbers. Started just focusing on whoever was there. You know, Pastor Chuck, before he wound up pastoring a church of 25, 30,000 people, was ministering all his, all his ministry life. He never pastored a church larger than 100 people. And just that's the way it was, 17 years. He never pastored a church more than 100 people. And he was ready to give up ministry. He said, I can be a Christian businessman. I don't have to be a pastor. He was really thinking about leaving the ministry because he had to work uh, full-time jobs to support him and his family. And so he worked at a, it was called Alpha Beta Market, kind of like a Dominic's or a Jewel out in California. And they liked him and wanted to put him in their management program. And he thought, well, Lord, maybe this is it. Maybe this is what you're, you know, you're telling me to do. The Lord spoke to Chuck and basically said, Chuck, you're trying to build my church in the energy of your flesh with your programs and gimmicks and all this stuff. Don't you know what my word says? Gave him two scriptures. The first one was, it's not by power nor by might, your power or your might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how the work of God gets done. Not through my gimmicks, my programs. And then the second was out of Acts 2. And the Lord, the Lord added daily those to the church being saved. Around that time, Chuck started to minister in a place known as Corona Del Mar in California. Uh, kind of inland a little bit. And God was really blessing. I mean, God was really blessing. And the, the fact, the church shot up to over 250 people. Now, that was huge. They'd never had a church that big before. But God began to lay it on Chuck's heart to move out of that church and take a small, struggling church 
near the ocean called Calvary Chapel. He really felt strongly about it. His wife Kay was very leery. What do you, what you, Chuck, you're working too hard. Talked to one of the guys in the church who was a psychiatrist. Will you, will you take Chuck out and talk to him? I think he's working too hard. Wants to leave this beautiful group of people. The church is growing, being blessed. He wants to go and, and, and take a church of 25 people. Struggling church, you know. Something's wrong, right? And so Chuck said, the guy asked me out to lunch and asked me questions. Do I love my mother? Do I love my father? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, that was a weird, weird conversation, but then I realized what had happened. You know. So... Um, I got the story a little confused. Somewhere along there, before I actually went to Costa Mesa, take on Calvary, this was a prelude to that. He um, took over another church of about 150 people. And every week, people were leaving the church. Every week. Now, Kay said he wasn't teaching anything different than what he teaches today. It's just that every week as he'd preach, people would then leave. The church went down from 150 to about 30 people. And she said, in looking back, she said, I realize now what God was doing. God was teaching Pastor Chuck humility. He would never have walked in the humility he walks in today. And this is now after he's now in Calvary Chapel and God's blown the doors off the place and thousands are coming. He never would have walked in the humility he walks in today. If God hadn't shown him, it's not you, Chuck. It's not you. With all your giftedness and teaching, it's not you. And when he finally moved over to Costa Mesa, took Calvary Chapel, struggling church of 25 people, he never forgot that lesson. Never forgot that lesson. And when he started to minister in Calvary Chapel, again, 25 people equally divided, he said, as soon as he started ministering there, God began to bring people. Every week they were putting up more chairs. Then they had to move into a different facility. And, and, and finally a tent while a new facility was being built. And every week they were putting up more folding chairs in this big circus tent. And finally, one evening they had, on Saturday night the guys had come and they were hooking up more lights and things, getting the tent ready for the service the next day, services. And uh, they had 1,600 folding chairs. It looked like a sea of folding chairs. And uh, Chuck's son, Chuck Jr., said, Dad, how long do you think it'll take the Lord to fill this place? About 12 hours, son. Next day, it was packed. And after the service, Chuck looked at his young son and said, Son, this is totally the grace of God. See, he had learned not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit. The work of God gets done. You want to be used by God? Never forget that lesson. Because the minute you and I begin to think, it's us. And it doesn't have to be something real overt. It can be just a little still small voice in our heart. Nobody does this ministry like I can do it. Oh, be careful. This great Babylon that I have built, that never works out well never works out well. Don't be discouraged. Keep your eyes on the Lord and keep remembering it's His work. It's His work. It's not our work. He lets us be a part of it. It's not our work. 
It's the Spirit's work that He's working through us. And number 12, God wants each of us to know and understand our gifts because before we can actually use them, we need to understand them and know how they function. And so that's where we're going to begin next week, guys. Next week, we're going to begin looking at these various gifts, how they function, what they are, first of all, how they function. And then as we're studying these, you pray. Well, Lord, I kind of wonder if I have this gift. And you pray and ask God to show you. And But again, get I don't have time to serve God. I'm just too busy. Can I just say this? You don't have time not to serve God. The time is that short. We need to get focused on what really matters. Okay? So, come on back next week, God willing, and we will begin to look at these gifts. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask you to bless our study, Lord, in these spiritual gifts. We understand how critical they are to the overall health and dynamic of the body, Lord. Give us grace if we've shied away, if we have run, if we have, uh, you know, been frightened away from the gifts because of the abuses. Father, forgive us and give us grace, Lord, to embrace the gifts and, uh, Lord, to use them in a way that is uh, orderly and uh, non-chaotic. Uh, Lord, you're not the author of confusion. But we thank you, Lord. We want this church to be all that you want it to be. Give us grace, Lord, and bless these studies. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.